0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated.
1: Well, again, it's a joy and a privilege to be with you all this morning and to get to open up God's Word. We're going to be in Psalm 1, and I hope to show you why I chose that passage for this special day. But this is a special day. It's a new beginning. The Lord has provided you with a new shepherd. Uh, There's a lot of joy, uh, hopefully, a lot of hope, hope and optimism that that fills this room today and based on what I can see, I don't know a lot about the history of Christ the King, so you'll have to forgive me there, but based on what I can see today, it looks like a a church that's been marked by much blessing. And so I had assumed that you have some bright days behind you, but if you're like most folks are, you hope that there's some even brighter days in front of you, that that's just how we are as people. Travis, I know that you and your family are hoping that, you know, this is it. This is where the Lord wants you and this is where God's called you to be. And you're hoping that this is going to be a blessing and not only for you, but for the folks that are here and that the Lord's going to use you to be a blessing to them because that's what we want at the end of the day is to be blessed. And that's the way the Psalm begins. Blessed is the man. And I want us to think about blessing in two senses. I want you to think about blessing both what you want as an individual, but I also want you to think about blessing this morning for what you want for this body. We we probably should say in a third sense and for what you want for the community where God is planting you. A longing desire for blessing is something that's very normal. C.S. Lewis in a number of his writings explores this phenomenon of longing or yearning for blessing. It's something that the Germans called Zainzut. And it's a word with strong overtones of seeking and searching. In thinking about Zainzut, Lewis observes that when we have it, we are seeking union with something from which we are separated. He says, for example, we want to be reunited with a happy time or a lovely place or a good friend. We look at a green valley and we want to crawl under its covers. We think of a happy home and we want to dwell in its center. We keep wanting to get back or to get in. And that's what we want. You know, I think a lot of the times if Christians were asked, you know, what do you really want? I mean, do you want to be happy? I think sometimes we think the answer that we're supposed to give is no. Because, you know, we're not supposed to want to be happy. We come up with some other more Christian word to share. But that's essentially how God made us. To long to be happy, to long to be blessed, to be whole in every way, to be complete, to know Shalom. And so the question is, how will you find that as an individual and how will you find that as a congregation? And so I want to set it up this way. Um, I love barbecue. I don't know much about barbecue and uh, I'm from the South. We love barbecue. I'm assuming y'all love some barbecue around here too. But when we would drive from South Carolina to Texas, where we live for a while, uh, we would go through Alabama, you know you'd really go through the heart of barbecue country the whole way, but you go through Alabama and in Tuscaloosa, there's this magical barbecue restaurant known as Dreamland Barbecue. And you get off on the exit in Tuscaloosa and you're trying to find this, this barbecue restaurant. And I think the road that you take is called Jug Factory Road. And you're driving up this road and you're pretty sure after you've gone a ways that you're lost. But the beauty of Dreamland is once you get to that point where you think you're lost, you've actually found it because just around the corner in the midst of all these houses in a very non kind of restaurant area is this old shack of a place called Dreamland Barbecue. And when you walk up to the door, it's, it's, it really is a shack, it has a screen door. You walk inside, um, it's very dark in there. It's a local kind of a place and so you immediately feel a little, you kind of feel like I felt yesterday when I was driving around Boston and getting hogged up because, you know, I'm not around, I'm not from around here. When you walk in Dreamland, you know, I'm not from around here. And you go and you sit down and the waitress comes up and asks you the most important question that you're going to be asked as you eat at Dreamland. And this is the question she asks, half slab or whole? half slab or whole. You see, they only do two things at Dreamland Barbecue. They'll give you a half a slab of barbecue ribs, or they'll give you a whole slab of barbecue ribs. But those are your only two choices. They have t-shirts that say, no fries, no beans, no slaw, don't ask. Because they do two things, half a slab of ribs or a whole slab of ribs. Now, I'm not really sure exactly, you know, I can already tell that Boston is a place of higher learning and I'm not exactly sure what your perspective on Alabama would be. But I would just assume that you probably would expect something exactly like that to come out of Alabama. And so that doesn't really surprise you, nor does it offend you. It's not something that really troubles you. And if they wanna only have two choices down there, then that's just fine with me. But you know, if we bring that and we think about applying that same principle that we apply to barbecue to people, then you might think about, you know, like, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Are you pro-life, are you pro-choice? Are you pro-vax, are you anti-vax? You know, we could go down the list. And when somebody asks you a question and there's no gray, there's no third way, there's no opportunity, like, I'm not really either one of those things, nope. If you have to be kind of pigeonholed, so to speak, into being one or the other, when we do that with people, we become very irritated and offended. Part of the reason we become that way is because that seems anything but progressive. It seems anything but nuanced. And we love nuance. And we love progression. And that's one of the things that makes this Psalm so offensive. It's the gatekeeper, and it's the one that kind of opens the doorway to blessing. But what this Psalm does is the same thing that Dreamland does for barbecue. It says that there are only two kinds of people in the world that there are those that are righteous and that there are those that are wicked. And it says you're either one or you're the other. It says there are those that lives are marked by life and blessing. And it says that there are other people whose lives are marked by death and cursing, death and destruction. And the question is, which one are you? The other thing that you might find to be offensive and surprising is that not only does Psalm 1 do this, but the entirety of the Bible does this, which is one of the reasons that people have such a hard time and a difficult time with the Bible. That's the question I want you to think about for yourself this morning as an individual, but I also want you to think about it on behalf of the congregation as a whole. Is this, are you, and is this a church that is... Are you a righteous person? Is this a church made up of righteous people whose lives are marked by life and blessing? Or are you as an individual and is this as a church, is this a church that's characterized by, by wickedness and death and destruction? That those are the only two options that are placed in our path. And in order for us to understand that, thankfully the psalmist gives us kind of a roadmap, so to speak, he shows us how to answer those questions. And the thing that, the main point, and if you only really get one thing this morning, then this is the thing I want you to get, and this is kind of the overall theme of this psalm, and this is it. That righteousness, life, and blessing are all about your relationship with God and His Word. That righteousness, life, and blessing are all about your relationship with God and His Word. It's all about relationship. St. Augustine knew this, he spent years in search of the sumum bonum, this final target of human longing. He called it the supreme good and he finally reached the end of his search after years of lust where he would pray, you know, before that, grant me chastity, but not yet. In a philosophical exploration, he found the one thing that would not fade away, the one good that would not crumble if he leaned on it with the full weight of his love. And so in his famous prayer at the beginning of the confessions, Augustine addressed the summum bonum of the world. And he said this, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That righteousness, life, and blessing are all about relationship with God and his word. I want you to see some of the things that mark a man or a woman or a church that is righteous, has life, and is blessed. And we're going to look at three things. I want us to look at the path of blessing. I want us to see the picture of blessing. And then lastly, I want us to consider the point of it all. The path to blessing, the picture of blessing, and the point of it all. The people in the psalm, the people in the scriptures that are blessed are identified by the path that they walk. Now, you need to understand it this way. It's not so much the path that you are going to walk one day because, you know, we've all got things we're going to do one day. We're going to, you know, we're going to exercise more. We're going to eat better. We're going to do a lot of good things at some point in the future, okay? We're just not doing those right now, but that's not how the blessed person is characterized. The blessed person is marked by the path they walk today, and so the question is, what path are you on? Um, not you know it's not where will you end up, but it's where are you now? And so questions you have to consider are: okay, What path are you walking? You know, how are you navigating the complexities of the world that we live in? How are you navigating all of the complication and the chaos of the world where we live? What's your compass? What's your map? Well, yesterday when we were driving in from Vermont, you know, I had Waze going, we're coming into Boston, never driven in Boston in my life. And let me tell you, it was pretty, t- pretty challenging. I'm sure it's easy for y'all, hard for me, coming in. Waze was not doing the job for me, um, though it usually does, it didn't do it yesterday. But you need a, an even better map to navigate life than a South Carolinian does for navigating the streets of Boston. And so the question is, what is your compass? What's the counsel, the voice, the leader, the speaking in and shaping the direction of your life? Maybe you put it this way, who or what are you trusting? Who or what are you hoping in? Who or what are you relying upon? And the Psalm puts forth two paths, that there's the path of the righteous and then there's the path of the wicked. The path of the righteous leads to life and blessing. The path of the wicked leads to death and destruction. Now, this is very important because I think it's easy to miss this in the psalm, but these paths are not marked by rules and regulations. These paths are not identified by do's and daunts. These paths are not identified by um, religion or irreligion. If you've been following me so far, then you should know that these paths are all about relationship. It's all about relationship. It's about our relationship with God and His Word. I mean, how do, how do we have relationship in general? You can't have a relationship without communication. You can't say I have a relationship with somebody that you don't communicate with. And we have a relationship with God as we communicate with him. How do we communicate with God? We communicate with him through prayer. The Psalms are the prayer book of God's people. How does God primarily communicate with us? Through his word, through his written word, the bread of life. That's how God communicates with us. And so therefore, the way of blessing is gonna be found through relationship, but that relationship is gonna be centered on God's word. And we see that in the very beginning. The man whose path, the righteous man's path that leads to blessing is first of all, marked by what he does not do. Verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is not the compass. These are not the people that he trusts. These are not the people that he relies upon. This is not the map that he uses to find blessing or she uses to find blessing. No, what is that guide? Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. The, The psalmist is It's kind of using contrast and comparison to show us the path that the righteous walk, which is rooted in God's word, and the path that the wicked walk, that is without relationship with God and his word. How does this righteous man walk? He he dwells in God's word. He meditates on God's word. He's grounded in God's word 24-7, day and night. That God's word is, where he, is what he places his trust in. God's word is what he hopes in. God's word is the authority that he or she comes under. God's word is where the righteous man or woman rests. That's what God's word is. B.B. Uh, Warfield says this. He says, the scriptures are spoken of as if they were God. In the other, God is spoken of as if he were the scriptures. In the two together, God and the scriptures are brought into such conjunction as to show that in point of directness of authority, no distinction was made between them. John Frame says, whenever God speaks, he not only reveals his power, not only reveals verbal content, but also reveals himself. That is to say, the word is the very presence of God among us, the place where God dwells. So you cannot separate the word of God From God Himself. The question for us is what is the place of God's word in your life? And what is the place of God's word in this church? Because the righteous man rests all his weight on God and his word. Um, You notice the wicked man is totally different. That the wicked person, the path of the wicked, there are these three degrees of departure. First is this concept of walking, that walking in the counsel of the wicked, just kind of passing by, kind of entertaining ideas and and other other opinions and perspectives. Secondly, there's this next progression, nor stands in the way of sinners. Now we're not walking, but we're standing, we've stopped. We're absorbing it, we're like a sponge. And then finally sits in the seat of scoffers, this concept of belonging, to have planted your tent, to have put down roots, so to speak. The thing that's marks the wicked most of all, though, is their lack of relationship with God and His Word, that they don't really need God's direction. They don't need God's Word to guide their path because they're like Toucan Sam, and I don't know if any of y'all remember him from the Fruit Loops commercial, but, you know, he would always say, you know, just follow your nose, and that's what most people do in the world. They just follow their nose, or maybe we would say it this way, just follow your gut, because a lot of us put a lot of value. I put a lot of value in my gut, and probably in more than one way, but... A lot of value there as far as what is my gut leading me to think and do, but your gut is worthless to you unless it's informed by God's Word, that the path of the righteous is centered on God's Word. Now, I want to kind of make one, I want to press this point a little bit further and then we're going to move on. But at the heart of this issue with regard to our relationship to God and His Word is an issue of governance or authority. You know, the questions that we got to ask ourselves is who will rule me? Who holds the authority in my life? What can and will to trump the voices in my head or in my gut? You know, what trumps the voices that drive my natural impulses to see self-promotion or self-protection or self-reliance or self-absorption? And at the end of the day, what this psalm is calling us to do is to submit to the authority of God's word in everything. Tim Keller says this, scripture cannot move from being words on a page to an encounter with God unless you accept all of it as authoritative. It won't be a living word from God. Now that's really tough because here's the, where the rubber meets the road. Think about it this way. If you reject some things in God's word, but you hold to other things in God's word, how can you be certain about anything in God's word? Let's say it differently. If you reject the difficult teachings of Scripture, how can you hold so confidently to the teachings you want to hear? How can you be sure that you're forgiven, sure that you're loved, and sure God is good if you don't accept all of God's Word? And the answer is you can't. You can't be sure, which is why the righteous one, his path, is rooted in God's Word. Okay, the second thing I want us to consider, though, is the picture of the blessed man and the psalmist paints a picture for us, and the first picture is is a tree. It says that the righteous man or woman is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. You have this picture of this glorious tree, and... As you'll see later, I picture this, I don't know, I picture either a fruit tree, but probably one of those old South Carolina oak trees that, that I've fa- fallen so fond of, which I'm going to talk about later. Um, this just strong, amazing tree. And it's not a tree that's just always having a great day. It's a tree that goes through dark seasons. It's a tree that goes through dry seasons. It's a tree that doesn't always bear fruit, but it's a tree that doesn't wither. And the thing that's amazing about this tree is that during the dry seasons, what this tree does is it drives its roots deeper into the soil because it's planted by this stream and it's trying desperately to find water. So though it might go through a certain season when it doesn't produce fruit, When it's driving those roots down deeper and deeper for dependence, for nourishment, for sustenance, the thing that's happening is the tree is becoming more mature. The tree is becoming stronger. The tree is setting itself up for the next year to be even more fruitful. The thing about the tree is, the tree is anything but self-reliant. The tree is anything but independent. The tree is absolutely dependent on the water source, on the stream that it's set beside. And that's the tree. That's a picture of the righteous man or woman. But then there's another picture. It says, not to the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. The chaff is that outward kernel. It reminds me of that kind of the husk on a popcorn kernel that gets stuck in your teeth at the movies and you can't get it out. But when you do finally get it out, it looks really shiny on the outside. It, maybe it looks glamorous like a movie star. But the thing is, is it's hollow and empty and weightless. It has nothing to hold it down. Wherever the wind blows, the, this chaff, this, this husk blows, it's that waste product from the winnowing or the threshing process. It's all alone. It doesn't want to be dependent, it doesn't want to be tied down, it's self-reliant, it's self-made, it's self-centered, it has no anchor, it has no root, it has no life source. The tree is a picture of relationship, this incredible relationship between the tree and the streams of water. The chaff is a picture of life without relationship, life on our own. The reason the tree is blessed, the basis for the blessing of the tree, has everything to do with the water source. The reason that the chaff has no blessing is because it has no relationship at all. So what's the point, you know, of all this? Well, we were up in Grafton, Vermont, for a couple of days before we came to Boston. And there's this historic cemetery in Grafton. I, I'd never been there before. I don't know if you've been, but it's, uh, I've no, I don't know if I've ever even been to a cemetery that had multiple graves of Minutemen, men, you know, Revolutionary War uh, soldiers in the graveyard, and so we walked it. There are all these really old graves, and the thing that blew me away about these graves was the inscription on the tombstones. And there was a lot about Jesus, a lot about Christ, and a lot about the language was something like this: "Hey, passerby, you know, don't be so ignorant, don't be so foolish, because before you know it." You will be right here beside me. It was like very much an awareness, there's a very much an awareness of death as there should be in a graveyard. And there was very much an awareness on these tombstones that we're all going to be in that same place at some point. And we know that about life. One of the things that we as Christians, not just PCA folk, but Christians throughout the world and throughout cultures do is we confess creeds. And one of the creeds that the church has confessed for almost 2,000 years is the Apostles' Creed. And you'll remember in the Apostles' Creed, there's this part where it focuses on Christ, where it says that he sits at the right hand of God the Father, Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I don't know if we think about that that much, but one of the things the church believes is that judgment is coming, that there is a day when we will all stand in the same place before the king and give an account. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, the picture of Jesus as the coming judge is the central feature of another absolutely vital and non-negotiable Christian belief that there will indeed be a judgment in which the creator God will set the world right once and for all. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. The judgment is coming. And one of the things you notice about the wicked in this passage in verse five is it says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What does that mean that they're not going to stand? I mean, they It means that they don't have a leg to stand on. It means that they don't have a relationship. It means that they don't have an advocate, that they don't have anyone that has their back. They don't have anyone whose life is lived on their behalf, that they're like the chaff. They're all alone. And when they find themselves in the judgment, they're still all alone. They are without relationship. And because they're without relationship with God and his word and Jesus Christ, our savior, they have no hope. They will not stand. They will be crushed. But notice what it says about the righteous. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This is not so the righteous. Why is that? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This word knowledge, whenever we see it in the Bible, it's a word that is clothed in intimacy, is clothed in intimate relational language to know, know, Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son. That the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This intimate relationship he is our father and we are his children he is our shepherd and we are his sheep the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep the good shepherd knows the sheep and my sheep know me it's about intimate relationship it's about union with Christ where the scriptures say when you pass through the waters I will be with you and the waves will not overcome you for I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you because the Lord has drawn us to himself. He has bound us to himself that we are united with Christ and we will not perish because we have relationship with him and we have relationship with him through his word, through his written word and the Lord Jesus, the living word. See, the stream in the Bible really is the Lord Jesus Himself, because the Lord Jesus is the one who sustains us. The Lord Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life for us. He's the one who will never leave us, he will never turn his back on us, he's the one who went to the greatest length. And we're going to celebrate that in a little bit later with the with the supper, where we see just how much He loves us. And when we rest all of our weight on Him, we're blessed. So the question is, where are you now? Where are you going? What's the path you're walking? Let me close with this. Uh, I love living in the low country of South Carolina, and one of the things, if you go, you come down our way, um, you see a lot of these glorious oak trees. There's a drive I love to take through the country uh, to a... Um, it's called Mepkin Abbey, and it's a monastery for Roman Catholic monks. And when you both drive to the monastery and when you drive on the property of the monastery, one of the things you see are these glorious... Oaks that are just hanging over the road, forming a canopy with this Spanish moss growing in the trees. And you can tell right away that these are some really, really old oak trees. One of the things you might also know about Charleston is that we see a lot of hurricanes. And back in 1989, the most devastating hurricane, at least in our lifetime, that blew through Charleston, known as Hurricane Hugo, which had winds, sustained winds of 135 miles an hour, it was a Category 4 hurricane, blew through. My wife grew up not far from Mepkin Avenue, this monastery. She lost 50 trees in her yard. Most of them were pine trees. But one Things that's amazing is to come and see all of these oak trees that not only live through Hugo, but live through a whole lot of other storms as well. And how did they do it? They had an incredible root system. And during the hard years and the hard days, their roots drove and dove deep into the ground because that's what held them firm when the storm came. And that's my hope and my prayer for you, both as an individual and as a church. that, that you and this church will be grounded in God's word, that you will plant yourself there and that you will cause the roots of your life and the roots of this church to dive deep into the ground, deep into the word, both the written word of God and the living word, the Lord Jesus himself, so that when the storms of life and the chaos begins to batter against you, that you will stand because the Lord Jesus holds you safe in his hands. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask that the words of my mouth now that we've just they've just been spoken, and the meditations of our heart, both now and later, that that they would be a blessing, that, that you would be glorified in them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.